<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Well, it's really interesting. Last night, Louise and I were kind of pulling shifts. (laughs) I I fell asleep around 10, and she was, you know, watching what was going on in the Senate on her. uh, We were laying in bed, and she was watching it on her computer. And, uh, you know, I kind of woke up around, I don't know, 12, 1, whatever time it was, sometime in the middle of the night. And she was like, uh, they're, they're, they were voting on the, on the motion to proceed to the vote and, or, or whatever it was called. And uh, we listened to that for a little while. And then she fell asleep. And I, I woke up, you know, I don't know, around 3 or something. And it had, it had been defeated, you know. And so I woke her up and said, hey, I was defeated. And she was like, oh, thank you. Um, I guess you can kind of tell that we don't have much of a life, <laughs> you know, when you spend your night following the Senate. But what I thought was most interesting was uh, the three people who voted to stop this Republican debacle and the story behind it. And there's actually a bigger story behind that. Uh, and and uh, uh, we, the, Paul Ryan is in this story, and then the, the, the three people who voted no are in this story. But, but the really the big frame, the big piece for this whole thing, is that uh, Sunday is the, I think, 52nd anniversary of uh, Lyndon Johnson signing Medicare into law. Maybe 62nd? No, it must be 52nd birthday, uh, 52nd uh, anniversary of it on Sunday. And uh, this, you know, this legislation would have killed Medicaid. And in fact, the way that Mitch McTurtle was, uh, Mitch McConnell was selling this thing to the Republican senators was with, as Mitch McConnell often does, a lie. And essentially what he was saying to them is it doesn't matter what you guys vote on. It's going to go to the House Senate Conference Committee and they're going to rewrite the whole thing anyway. And then you won't be held to account for it. You won't be blamed for it. And it's not going to be, you know, as draconian as this bill is. And this bill was considerably watered down from how draconian the House bill was. And so, you know, a few of the Republican senators were like, oh, OK, well, thanks for the reassurance. And then Paul Ryan last night said, you know, the House is perfectly willing to take up the Senate bill or words to that effect. In other words, when we 
you know, we may not even take this to, rec- to reconciliation, to conference, uh, or if we do, we'll just go with what you guys want and make it real easy, because we know that can pass the Senate. Now, at that point, it got super real, right? This is going to throw at least 15 million Americans off their health insurance, like right away. And down the road, it's going to be 20, 30 million Americans, and you're going to have bodies. We're going to see people dying as a result of what the Republicans were doing last night in the Senate. These, these, these little mind games on behalf of the libertarian billionaires who don't think that their tax dollars should go to pay for, for health care for takers rather than makers, right? I mean, that's really what this all boils down to. So Paul Ryan said that. So, so we knew right from the get-go there's 50, 52 senators, 52 Republican senators out of 100, and uh, two of them had already defected. Susan Collins of Maine had said, no, I am not going to vote on this thing. Uh, this is this is bad for the people of Maine. And it is. I mean, Maine's a very rural state. It's got a lot of rural hospitals and they, you know, you do away with Medicaid. And a lot of those hospitals are going to go out of business. A lot of people in Maine would have been very, very badly hurt by that legislation. In fact, Susan Collins, had she voted yes, may have lost her seat. Because the people of Maine have got this thing figured out. So, you know, while it was you know, kind of noble of her to buck her own party. Susan Collins has done that before. And, and in fact, she really almost had no choice. I mean, she was, she, she did a good, a good thing and I want to acknowledge her for it, but she didn't, didn't really put herself out on the limb. Lisa Murkowski, however, whole nother story. Lisa Murkowski, the uh, uh, Republican from Alaska, who her own party rejected at the institutional level in the last election, and they put up somebody else to run against her, and she ran a run-in campaign, uh, excuse me, a write-in campaign in Alaska. And, you know, how do you spell Murkowski? Because you have to spell it perfectly right in order for that vote to count. And the people of Alaska wrote in her name, and she won. So she's pretty popular in Alaska. But Ryan Zinke called her and called the other senator from Alaska and said to both of them, Nice state you got there. Nice oil and gas industry that I supervise on the federal lands. Be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> so Murkowski was facing an overt and explicit threat of revenge from the Interior Department and the administration. And, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that they will probably try to punish her. So she was facing a serious threat of punishment. And, you know, and the Republican Party is fairly strong in Alaska. So, so Lisa Murkowski actually uh, I took a hell of a chance saying, no, I'm going to do the right thing. Which brings us to John McCain. All over the media, I mean, I've, I've seen four or five Chirons, you know, the lower thirds on television saying McCain cast decisive vote, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, he waited until he was the decisive vote. And McCain comes out and does the thumb down like the old Roman senators or the uh, Roman people who would go to the amphitheater and watch the gladiators. And after they were all done, you know, the gladiator that survived, you know, if they would give him a thumbs up or a thumbs down, if it was thumbs down, they'd kill him. Right. So uh, John McCain, you know, playing the role of a Roman senator, I guess, comes out and does a thumbs down. They record that as a no vote. The whole chamber goes. (gasps) And McCain is treated like he's, you know, the conquering hero. Well, you know, 
Conquering hero John McCain is not. And in fact, and I had printed out the story, but our printer is, has gotten totally flaky and the story somehow never made its way, uh, made its way to my, uh, my desk. So my, my apologies to the people of Hawaii. I don't remember the name of your senator. But she flew back. She's a Democrat. She flew back for this vote. And she has stage four kidney cancer. She, you know, stage four, you're like, you know, metastasized, like, you know, high probability you're going to die. Kidney cancer. She flew back with this to vote against this health care bill. She gets no credit for that. McCain has brain cancer. He's got nothing to lose. He's not going to, he's not in all probability going to run for re-election. He may not even survive that long. And so it's not like this cost him a lot to do the right thing. If anything, you know, frankly, with a lot of Americans, it made him a hero. But I think the real hero last night was Lisa Murkowski. And I think John McCain is getting way too much credit. Because the media has this whole narrative about, you know, oh, he's such a maverick. He's so different. He's not like everybody else. Yeah, right. So, so, but, but the larger, the larger story to get back to that, I keep, you know, saying there's, there's a bigger story here. The bigger story is that 52 years ago, Sunday, we got both Medicare and Medicaid. And the American people discovered a new, as they did back in the 30s when we got Social Security, and over the years, many other programs did, brought to you by Democrats, from unemployment insurance to workman's compensation to, uh, you know, the 40-hour the work week to, uh, I, you know, the list just goes on and on and on, that, you know, brought to you by the Democrats, that people discovered when Social Security was passed that the government can do something right. The government can really be a force for good. This was after, you know, eight years no, nine long years was Franklin Roosevelt's phrase. You know, nine years of living with a fatted calf, three years of depression um, from 1920 to 1929, basically, from the election of Warren Harding until the great crash. What, what FDR showed us with Social Security is the government can work. It can work very efficiently. Nobody's ever missed a Social Security check. They've, you know, since 1935, nobody, every check has gone out. The system works just fine. The system is solvent. It needs a few tweaks around the edges, but it's, it's doing just fine. Same with Medicare and Medicaid. And of course, the Republicans consider this socialism. Well, the billionaires consider it socialism, that we little people would ask for some of their money to help pay for, their, for a decent quality of life for all of us. Um, you know, they, they realize that a middle class is not a normal thing, that you have to create a middle class. You, you, normal capitalist economics does not produce a middle class. What it produces is a very small, very wealthy class and a very large class of very poor people and a very tiny middle class, which is mostly doctors and lawyers and, and artisans who have, you know, a really, really high level skill set. That's the middle class in classic economics. Charles Dickens wrote about it in all his novels. So if you want to have a real middle class that encompasses, you know, all those people who otherwise would have made up the working poor, you have to have a transfer of wealth. You have to have minimum standards for business that say you cannot pay below this. Now, England didn't want that during the time of Charles Dickens. They actually had maximum wage laws that said you may not pay more than this. Because they did not want a middle class to emerge because middle classes are politically pesky. They tend to demand things like accountability and honesty and government. So 
you know, people have figured out as the Democrats brought us the middle class in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and then the Republicans started systematically destroying the middle class in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 20 teens, that there's a difference between these two parties, and they have different agendas, and that the Republican Party's agenda is all about the billionaire class and all about the, 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 the transnational oligarchs and corporations, and that the Democratic Party's shtick, their thing, what they're all about, is working people. And people are more and more waking up to this. So, you know, arguably, this is the real reason why the skinny deal is dead, is deep down inside, John McCain knew that the years and years that he has spent promoting lies and propping up his party and their BS agenda, pretending that they're here for the little guy who just wants to own his gun and just wants to be able to put nooses in front of the houses of black people and just wants to be sure that his, his school is segregated. You know, the little guy, right? That, that all those years that the Republican Party had been defending that little guy, they had also been economically screwing the little guy. And John McCain knew this. This is no secret in Republican circles. They know it. They sit around. They laugh about it. But last night, you know, he, he joined, two, you know, the two women did the heavy lifting, right? Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, they did the heavy lifting. John McCain comes in, st stands on the platform for a few minutes and basically is, <gasps> whoa, what an amazing thing he did. Right. Anyhow, that's what happened last night. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Thank you. And the uh, senator from Hawaii is Mazzy Hirono. And my apologies uh, to Senator Hirono for uh, not remembering her name. We'll be right back. Welcome back. On the line with us, Christine Pellegrino, New York State Assemblywoman representing New York's 9th District uh, Elementary School teacher, Bernie Kratt. Uh, she's at the uh, Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Uh, the candidate training camp, uh, the PCCC, the, uh, and her website is nyassembly.gov slash mem, as in member, M-E-M, slash Christine-Pellegrino. Uh, Assemblywoman Pellegrino, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Thanks for being with us. So tell us about the, oh, and by the way, your, your Twitter handle is uh, cpellegrino1221, if, if anybody yeah. wants to tweet you. So tell Thank me about the, the, the conference and about the new progressives. So this is an amazing group of active people who are stepping up to take on, you know, running for office at a, at a, at a critical moment um, in our history. We heard from Keith Ellison this morning, who um, really fired up the base, talking about um, staying connected to the grassroots, you know, where, where most of us sort of got um, got involved. Um, and, and, and this is like... Uh, a room full of, of, of really dedicated and energetic leaders who are looking to change the world. It's an incredible place. That is great. What, what, what do you see as the principal issues that progressives who are coming up in the Democratic Party right now should be really, really focused on? Um, well, I think I think advancing our agenda, I mean, obviously we're so focused on health care right now. Um, you know, defeating the, 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 the skinny bill um, last night and, and being right here on the steps of the Capitol. So many of the people that are here um, were actually there last night to welcome, you know, out the senators, uh, 
um, Senator Warren and, and Bernie Sanders, uh, both came out and spoke to the crowd that had gathered. Um, it was, it was pretty electrifying and, and, uh, you know, we heard from Senator Warren yesterday, um, as well. Um, and, and she also spoke about staying connected and, and really feeling the power of, um, the small dollar donation and how, um, effective that could be. And people are really moved by that and thinking that um, politics as usual has changed and that the person who's running for office is a different kind of person now. People who are um, not ever thinking that they could have or would have run for office feel the call to public service and, and that, you know, as a progressive movement, we're really able to propel those people into the offices that they seek. The networks that we're creating are, are essential to keeping that movement and that work going. I'm that, really proud to be part of it. That is marvelous. Christine Pellegrino, New York State Assemblywoman for the 9th District, elementary school teacher, and Bernie Kratt, a bold progressive.org, by the way, is putting this thing on. Uh, Assemblywoman Pellegrino, thanks so much. You bet. Great talking with you. We'll be you back. Too. Thank you. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. This is uh, fascinating. This is over on the Hill, you know, the newspaper, the Hill. Uh, defense by James uh, John Bowden, excuse me. Uh, defense Secretary James Mattis was caught off guard and appalled. That's pretty strong language coming from, you know, the Secretary of Defense, the guy in charge of the Armed Forces of America. Appalled by President Trump's announcement that he was banning transgender people from serving in the military, according to a New York Times report. Mattis, who was on vacation at the time of Trump's decision, only had one day's notice before Trump tweeted his announcement. Uh, sources, according to the New York Times, sources close to the defense secretary told the Times that Mattis was infuriated by the tweets and saw them as an insult to transgender Americans currently serving in the military. Mattis, according to the Times, had been quietly lobbying Republicans for months to defeat a Republican-led amendment the 2017 spending bill that would prevent the military from spending money on transition surgery or home hormone therapy for transgender service members. The report states that Mattis initially resisted the initial policy allowing Americans, transgender Americans, to serve, but accepted that the policy was to remain in place. His uh, predecessor, the former defense secretary, Ash Carter, ripped the Trump administration for reversing the Obama administration's policies. Pretty important stuff. Pretty amazing stuff, actually. In 1917, uh, this was interesting, a, a silent protest, Chad Williams at Brandeis University wrote this op-ed, um, a silent protest parade in 1917 set the stage for civil rights marches. The only sounds were those of muffled drums, the shuffling of feet, and the gentle sobs of some of the estimated 20,000 onlookers. The women and children all wore white. The men were all dressed in black. It was July 28th, that's today, 1917, nearly 10,000 African-Americans marched down Fifth Avenue, New York City, in silence to protest racial violence and white supremacy in the United States. New York City and the nation had never before witnessed such a remarkable scene. The silent protest parade, as it came to be known, was the first mass African-American demonstration of its kind and marked a watershed moment in the history of the civil rights movement. Uh, Chad Williams wrote a book called Torchbearers of Democracy, and, and he, he profiles this. Um, the remarkable, remarkable story. 
I have an article that is going to uh, be published tomorrow on Alternate that I wanted to share pieces of with you. It is titled, The Past Five Presidents Have Used Fraud and Treason to Steer Themselves to Electoral Victory. The deception started long before Donald Trump. And, you know, I've talked about this before on this program, but I just, you know, thought it would be a good idea to just go through it all again. Uh, the, you know, pe people are talking about the Republican Party and Donald Trump and his links to organized crime and, you know, calling him Teflon Don and, you know, all these scandals ranging from uh, his interactions with foreign oligarchs uh, to his attempt to kill tens of thousands of Americans by denying them health care to his stepping up of the destruction of the environment and destruction of public lands by turning them over to petro-billionaires and oil mining interests. Um, but, uh, you know, he was not the first Republican president to commit high crimes in office or in order to get into office, to get and stay in office. In fact, Eisenhower was the last, in my opinion, the last legitimately elected president of the United States. Since he left the presidency in 1961, we have had six Republican presidents, and every single one of them, from Richard Nixon to Donald Trump, have been illegitimate, ascending to the highest office in the land, not through small-D Democratic elections, but instead through fraud and treason. Let's start with Richard Nixon. And you might want to pull up the, the audio of, of uh, Nixon talking to uh, Dirksen here. Richard Nixon in 1968 uh, knew that Lyndon Johnson was desperately trying to end the war in Vietnam. And Johnson, LBJ, had gotten it to the point in the final months of October 1968 where the South Vietnamese had actually agreed. There was a ceasefire going on. It looked like it was holding. They were going to meet in Paris. They were going to make this thing happen. And Nixon's people reached out to the president of South Vietnam and said, don't go to the peace talks. Don't cooperate with President Lyndon Johnson or Vice President Hubert Humphrey. Don't do it. Wait until after the election and Richard Nixon will make you rich. And so the politicians of Vietnam said, cool, screw peace. And another 20,000 or so American soldiers died. Probably another million Vietnamese died. Cambodians and Laotians died. And in the end, it wasn't until the Jerry Ford presidency that we finally pulled out. And here, and, and Lyndon Johnson learned about this. Three days before the election, he learned about this, and he called up Everett Dirksen to say, Everett, oh my God, here, listen to this. This is Lyndon Johnson and Everett. Everett Dirksen, by the way, was the leader of the Republicans in, in the United States, arguably, at that point. That, you know, you had a Democrat in the White House. Uh, the Republicans in the Senate were led by Everett Dirksen. He was... He was considered the wise old man of the Senate. He was very conservative, but not in the way that we would use that word today. He was not conservative like he's there for corporate interests. He was conservative like he was in favor of moving the country forward, but gradually. That's what conservative used to mean back in the 60s, uh, you know, or to, to a certain extent. He was a decent man, Everett Dirksen. And here he is, the, the, the number one Republican and the number one Democrat in America. This is the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, talking to Everett Dirksen, Senator Everett Dirksen. Here's the latest, latest uh, information we got. The agent says that uh, she's just, they just talked to the boss in New Mexico. Uh -huh. And that he says that you must hold out, just hold on until after the election. 
We know what Chew is saying to them out there. Yeah. We're pretty well informed on both ends. Now, I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. That's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I know. This is treason. I know. It's amazing. So Richard Nixon came to, came to power through treason. He, you know, with the, with the peace talks would have caused people to say, oh, yeah, Humphrey, cool. You know, he's going to bring peace. We'll vote for him. That's that was the big issue. Nixon was campaigning that he was going to end the war in Vietnam. He had a secret plan. Couldn't tell you. See, Trump said the same thing about ISIS. I got a secret plan. I can't tell you what it is. Because Trump's advisors, you know, Roger Stone and all, they're all old Nixon guys. So you've got Nixon who was who came to power by treason and you got Jerry Ford. Jerry Ford uh, got selected by Richard Nixon to be his vice president because the vice president that was elected, Spiro Agnew, had been taking bribes when he was the governor of Maryland and they'd finally caught up with him and they were going to prosecute him while he was sitting in the White House as the vice president. So he resigned and Nixon replaced him with Jerry Ford. Jerry Ford became president and pardoned Nixon and all of his buddies. And so Jerry Ford only was president because of Nixon's treason. He's also an illegitimate president. The next Republican president to come along was Ronald Reagan. In 1980, Jimmy Carter was way ahead. Everybody liked Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was doing a pretty good job. The economy was a little soft, but it was largely the result of the Arab oil boycott. And Carter had, he was doing something about it. You know, his famous speech where he said, you know, the energy crisis is real and we're going to create the solar bank so that 20% of our nation's electricity is produced by solar power by the year 2000. He put solar panels on the roof of the White House. The thing that was hurting Carter was that a group of Iranian radicals, the so-called students, had taken 56 American hostages at the Iranian embassy after the Shah fell. And so the Reagan administration reached out to the Ayatollah and said, if you'll hang on to those hostages until after the election, this is the same game Nixon played. You'll hold on to the hostages until after the election. Then we will send you, we'll sell, sell you weapons, even though it's completely illegal. And the Iranians really needed weapons from the United States because the Shah had been our ally and their entire military was all American made stuff. And their planes needed spare parts, they needed tires, they needed replacement missiles, they needed, they needed everything. Their military was starting to fall apart because it was all American-made. And Reagan said, don't worry, we'll keep you going. Just keep the hostages so I get elected. And they did, and he was. And the president of Iran, Bonnie Sutter, wrote in an editorial for the Christian Science Monitor, he said, and I quote, I openly opposed the hostage-taking throughout the election campaign. I won the election with over 76% of the vote. Other candidates also were openly against hostage-taking. And overall, 96% of votes in that election were given to candidates who were against hostage-taking. 96% of the vote in Iran was free the hostages. But the Ayatollah said, no, we can't do this because I cut a deal with the Reagans, with the Reagan campaign. And in fact, this is then Bonnie Sauter later on in the editorial in the Christian Science Monitors in 2013. He says, after arriving in France in 1981, I told a BBC reporter that I left Iran to expose the symbiotic relationship between Khomeiniism and Reaganism. Ayatollah Khomeini and Ronald Reagan had organized a clandestine negotiation known as the October Surprise, which prevented the attempts by myself and then President, U.S. President Jimmy Carter to free the hostages before the 1980 U.S. Elect presidential election took place. 
The fact that they were not released tipped the results of the election in favor of Reagan. End of quote from the president of Iran at the time. And Reagan's treason, just like Nixon's treason, worked perfectly. Reagan took the oath of the office and literally, as he raised his hand, the Iranians let, let the hostages go. And Reagan, good to his word, started selling weapons to the, to the Iranians right away. And that's what we call the Iran hostage, the Iran-Contra scandal. So then Reagan's vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, was elected because he was vice president to a guy who had committed treason to take the White House. So he was an illegitimate president. Which brings us to George W. Bush, who only got into office because his brother ordered the Secretary of State of Florida to knock 56,000 African-Americans off the voting rolls three weeks before the election so that his brother could get within spitting distance of winning the election. And still, he didn't win the state of Florida. They had to stop the count. They had to bring in the Supreme Court, five right-wingers on the Supreme Court to stop the count. Sandra Day O'Connor, I think to this day, regrets that vote. And that, of course, you know, that was George W. Bush, and now we've got Donald Trump. And there are many questions about his legitimacy, whether foreign governments were involved, whether the Russian government was involved, whether the, whether the oligarchs were involved. I'd say that the biggest thing is the oligarchs, you know, the Mercer and the Cokes and all these guys, the billionaires behind him, and all the lies he told. You know, Trump said he was, you know, you can go through the list, right? He was, he was going to get money out of politics. He was going to stop. He was going to blow up the trade deals. He was going to bring back our jobs. He was going to protect Social Security. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Trump lied through his teeth at virtually every rally and continues to. I, like I said, I got an email from him this morning filled with lies. Welcome back. On the line with us, Congressman Keith Ellison, the uh, co-chair of the, or the uh, deputy chair, excuse me, of the, uh, of the Democratic National Committee, the DNC. And, of course, brilliantly representing the 5th District of Minnesota. Congressman Ellison, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's great to be back, man. And I just want to say thanks for having me on. I really love being in touch with your listeners and you. Well, thank you. Thank you. We only have a few minutes uh, here until the hard break at the bottom of the hour. So uh, 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 not, not quite the time to pull up calls. But uh, I'm curious what you think of what's going on in Washington, D.C. And what are the things that that you think we should all be paying attention to, very careful attention to? Well, now that uh, the so-called skinny repeal has failed, uh, they're going to swing right into tax reform. And uh, you guessed it. Uh, they think rich people just don't have enough money and poor people have way too much money, so they're going to pro make proposals along those lines. Hmm. Um, that's that's going to be the name of the game. So uh, I, I think that uh, the thing to do is to be very clear that the kind of fight that we had to wage to protect health care we need to wage in the short term uh, to protect the budget. Now, always keep in mind that the whole fight about health care wasn't really about health care. It was about positioning themselves with enough budget space to give massive tax cuts, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that they can't, can't do this tax cut, I mean, do the health care repeal, has impinged upon their ability to do uh, to do their tax cuts that they want to do. Um, and so, but they're not going to stop, right? And they're prepared to cut Meals on Wheels, you know, the Appalachia Regional uh, Council, um, you know, basic research, all kinds of programs. They are ready to slash and burn 
um, in order to be able to give rich people more money. They will try out the old tried and true lame thing about if you give the rich folk and the big corps more money, they're going to use it to build plants and equipment and hire all the rest of us, uh, you know, peons, right? But mm. but they, but it never works and it never does. And so it's important to keep that in mind. And so that's kind of what's on on store for for all y'all folks who really want to stay right up to date or maybe one step ahead. Start thinking so-called tax reform. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a fellow call earlier and say, We're, what about spending cuts? We need spending cuts. And I'm like, you know, why? <laughs> you know, why don't we speak? I mean, you know, now I will tell you this, though. Me and Bernie Sanders have had this piece of legislation called the uh, the uh, in, the the, uh, the welfare, In-Polluter Welfare Act. Ah, that's great. That's yeah. great. And the In-Polluter Welfare Act basically identifies about $110 billion worth of <clears throat> tax giveaways to big polluters. Oh, that's great. Say, well, you want to talk about tax cuts? Let's, talk, let's start here. Amen. Congressman Ellison, thanks so much for being with us today. You're listening yeah, buddy. to the See Tom Hartman yep. program. Bye-bye. Call 202-808-9925. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Donald, Donald Trump. Oh, my God. He's we're, we're bringing jobs to America. Now, first of all, when foreign companies build factories in the United States. To manufacture and sell products to Americans. Where do you think the profit from those factories is going? Do you think that profit that profit is going into American banks and it's going to be reloaned out to people to buy houses? Do you think that profit is going to stay here in the United States? It's going to be distributed to the stockholders in the in in, in the United States. Do you think that profit is going to stay here in the United States with the you know the the money that the senior executives are making? No, it's a foreign company. Foreign companies keep their money in their foreign country, right? In their in their home country, especially if they're Chinese. The Chinese have, I mean, they watched us for a century and they said, we can figure out how to do this. They're, they're beating us at our own game because we quit playing the game when Reagan came in. We, you know, we were a mercantilist country from the founding of our republic until the Reagan administration. And then we abandoned mercantilism and started embracing these so-called free trade deals. And now, you know, it's a mess. So now the, the, the Chinese company, Foxconn, that, that uh, you know, mostly became famous for assembling Apple iPhones, the, the most expensive parts of the iPhones are actually manufactured in Germany, where they've got really, really high quality precision manufacturing. But they're assembled in China by Foxconn, or they were assembled. I'm not sure what the status is right this very minute, but they were assembled in China by Foxconn. And the conditions were so bad that people were throwing themselves off the roof of the building and committing suicide. So they put giant nets around the building. Remember this? I mean, this is a couple of years ago. So now Foxconn wants to bring their factory to Wisconsin. And Paul Ryan and Scott Walker and Donald Trump really want that factory in Wisconsin because it's going to be, be some jobs, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's going to, the, the plant is going to create about 3,000 jobs and building the plant will be a temporary 10,000 jobs. So you're talking 13,000 jobs, at least for a year. 
which sort of sounds like a good thing to the average American, not thinking, hey, wait a minute, this is a foreign company. This means that this little patch of land and all the profits from it and all the products sold all over the United States are going to generate profits for China, not for the United States, number one. But number two, perhaps even more interesting, this is from Bloomberg. This is not from the uh, American Socialist website. This is from Bloomberg. Quote, they're talking, actually, before I get to the quote, I'll explain what it is I'm quoting. They're talking about a $3 billion taxpayer-funded subsidy to Foxconn to build a factory in Wisconsin. $3 billion. Now, you divide that by the population in Wisconsin, it comes out to $519 a person. So back to the Bloomberg quote. At $519 per citizen, it would have been cheaper to buy an iPhone for every man, woman, and child in the Midwestern state. Wisconsin is paying as much as $1 million per job, jobs that will carry an average salary of $54,000 a year. Wisconsin is paying as much as $1 million per job using tax money taken from the working people of Wisconsin to give to Foxconn to build a factory there so that Donald Trump and Scott Walker and Paul Ryan can claim that they're, manu- that they're creating jobs. They're paying $1 million per job. Milwaukee Journal Sentinel notes, this from a piece in, on Think Progress by Aaron Rupar. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel notes that the subsidy package is nearly 50 times larger than any other offered in the state's history and would total more than the combined yearly state funding used to operate the University of Wisconsin system and the state's prison system. Now, by the way, Trump is taking credit for this, right? Trump came out and said, uh, if I didn't get elected, Foxconn would not be spending $10 billion, you know, this is to build a factory. And then uh, Aaron Rupar writes, as far back as 2013, now this is long before Trump, Foxconn was planning to open a manufacturing plant in the U.S. The company has a poor record on workers' rights issues. They struck a tentative deal with the state of Pennsylvania to build a plant there in November of 2013. And those talks finally broke down this year when they moved to Wisconsin. Apparently, uh, you know, Pennsylvania couldn't bribe them most heavily, you know, heavily enough. Wisconsin Representative uh, Jimmy Anderson, a Democrat, views things differently than Walker and Trump. In a press release headline, Foxconn should be paying Wisconsin to access the greatest workforce on Earth. Anderson writes that, quote, Wisconsin taxpayers should not be subsidizing private corporations at the expense of our children's schools and roads. The Republican-controlled legislature and Governor Walker have consistently asked you to tighten your belt and have rejected other opportunities to create family-sustaining jobs. But when a, when a multinational corporation wants a multi-billion-dollar handout, Governor Walker more than bends over backwards. This, by the way, is not the first time that Donald Trump has taken credit for jobs that were created while he was president, but that were put into place before he was president. Progress pointed out uh, uh, jobs announcements at Intel, Exxon, Toyota, Charter, Ford, and SoftBank. In every single case, Trump has taken credit, and in every single case, the deals were cut before he was president. 
And he was totally silent when Carrier laid off another 338 employees at its, uh, its Indianapolis plant just last week or just last, you know, just in this past month. This is bizarre. I mean, this is if we talk about crony capitalism. This is this is worse than that. This is this is corporate welfare. You know, Reagan used to go off on welfare queens. Ever identified the real welfare queen? Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between. Plus, the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.